Many times I've woken up and thought, oh, what can I do to get out of this? Can I fake an injury? And then I realize it's just me. The only person I'm faking is me. The only person I'm lying to is me if I do that. And the same thing with not finishing a race. I'm the only person that I have to answer to. One of the things that Teddy Atlas talks about on our podcast is being a game quitter. It's much more painful and much more difficult to quit than it is to stick it out and give your best. Because you have to live with that quit and that failure for a fucking long time. And the pain of suffering through, especially a race where someone's not trying to like literally kill you, you can do this. And I just get up and I find myself going through the motion. It's almost like I'm on autopilot because in my heart, I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put myself out there. I don't want to like be exposed. Like that fear of failing is like incredibly powerful for me. But like I said, the pain of not giving your all is like last with me forever and, and as I said earlier I'm the only one that cares and I know that but I care I care if I fail and I care if I didn't give a hundred percent and it's I don't know it's like a mental exercise for me that's Ken Rideout and this is episode 91 of the morning shakeout podcast What's up, Morning Shakeout listeners? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this week I've got a great guest for you, and I think it's one of the best conversations that I've had in the two years that I've been doing this podcast. I sat down with my friend and athlete, Ken Rideout, the night before this year's Cal International Marathon, where the next day he ran 228.25 to place second overall in the Masters race and win the 45 to 49 age group. It was a five-minute lifetime PR for Ken, who is a 48-year-old dad of four. He works full-time in finance, travels a ton, co-hosts the popular boxing podcast called The Fight with Teddy Atlas and gets out to train hard first thing every morning because he says it keeps him stable. Ken is one of the most raw, driven, and passionate people that I know, and it really comes across throughout this conversation, all the way down to some of the language that he uses, so consider yourself warned. Like me, he's a native of Massachusetts who landed himself in California a few years ago. He had a rough childhood growing up in Somerville, spent his college years working as a prison guard. He boxed and played football and hockey before finding endurance sports later in his life, and has generally just followed a super interesting path to land himself where he is today. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. I think you'll take a lot away from this one. So please enjoy my conversation with the incomparable Ken Rideout. Everyone's idea of Everest is a little bit different. Yeah, It can be a marathon for some people. It can be this, you know, 29029 Everest simulation type thing. It could be a 5K for someone else. And I think that's what's super interesting just about the sport in general. And it's pretty consistent with the stories I'm trying to get people to tell on this podcast because I've got people who come in and are trying to win Olympic medals, but I've got other people who I've sat down with and they're coming back from a substance abuse problem or they got into running after their relationship fell apart and they're using it as that and they happen to maybe be good at it. And I think that's, I don't know, I think those stories are really interesting. So that's that's a good point. Let's start rolling and talk about those things on the show. Because okay. I have some interesting thoughts about that well, that I good. think people will find entertaining. I have no doubt they're going to find your stories entertaining. So why don't we roll right into it? Ken Rideout, it's a pleasure to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been so, looking forward to this. We are in 
soaking wet Sacramento right now, day before CIM. You're racing tomorrow, and I think a real obvious place to start, at least for me, because I've been coaching you for the last few months for this race. What has it been like for you to have a coach for the first time in your life? Um, Well, I've had a triathlon coaches in the past, but... You know, as you and I have discussed this, but I kind of, I I treat coaching almost like as a a guideline, not like an exact science, as you've seen over the things like when you're working, when you're working full time and having a family and stuff, to me, the coaching was almost like an accountability thing. I knew the basics of what I had to do. And as an example, to get into some of the training that we've done for for previous marathons and my last three marathons were 233, 234, 235. But the one of the, one thing that I was doing was putting in good miles, hundred mile weeks, sometimes back to back hundred mile weeks. But I was lacking a lot of the high quality workouts that you've had me doing for the last three months, and some of those have served as incredible confidence builders, and others have destroyed my confidence. When I'm like, I can't even bear the thought of running a sub seven minute mile. How am I going to run nine miles at five forty five, five thirty five, five twenty five, back up to five forty five? You know, three sets of three like that with no the five forty five being the like recovery effort. And uh, somehow, I, you know, a lot of them I managed to do. Some of them were epic failures. But in that regard, it's been uh, to me the biggest impact has been the accountability factor. Just knowing that you're seeing them, and it's like I, I almost feel like this weird um, partnership will. Kinship, maybe not weird to some people, but to me it is because I always tell people about their races like, you know, and I know, no one gives a fuck about your results except you. Like, no one cares if I don't finish this race tomorrow except me. But to me, it's like the only thing I care about for the next 24 hours. It's critically important to me, as crazy as that may sound. But that's the thing about these kind of endeavors is like it's all relative, right? To some people, they may think 233, oh my God, that's an epic fast time. But to me, it's like, well, relatively speaking, I guess so. But it's not fast when you compare it to a guy who's going to run 203 in like Berlin and my wife will always remind me like, yeah, but you're not a professional runner, but it's still... I still can't get that out of my mind that, well, if someone else is doing that, how can I be 30 minutes slower than another human being over the same distance? So, you know, it's a weird uh, roller coaster of emotions uh, doing these types of events. But that's why they're so personal. Exactly. Too. Everyone's 233 is going to be a bit different. That might be a 403 for someone else. That might be a 203. Well, no, 203 is nothing for a late Kipchoge, but that might be a 203 <laughs> for an aspiring like 207 type of marathoner. But what's interesting to me sitting in this chair is regardless of what that number is on the clock, I think what you said, no one really cares except you how it ends up but what it takes to get to those places is way more similar than it is different i mean you're not in the rift valley training with a big group who are all running like you know 205 203 207 type of marathons but you're putting in a lot of work you have a family you have other responsibilities and from where i sit that's what's more impressive than whatever the number is that's on the clock at the end of the day I agree with you. That's why I always tell people it's all relative because you're right. To me, this race is important as, is, is as important to me as the guys in the Rift Valley training for Boston, New York, Berlin, Chicago, and London. Like this is important to me. So, and, and in that regard, maybe I haven't spent as much time and mileage as them, but it's not 
ridiculously far off in terms of um, my capacity to do work. I'm also 48 years old. My body can only handle so many miles before things start going terribly wrong, which is, you know, at this stage of the game when people are like, how are you feeling? I'm like, well, you want me to go in alphabetical order with all the things that are <laughs> bothering me? I mean, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like um, fighting. 90% of the battle is getting to the, into the ring or the octagon as risk-free, as injury-free as humanly possible because it's the same thing on the start line at a marathon. Everyone is fit. Who's the healthiest? Who's been able to absorb all the training and, and recover and get there in one piece and get there, you know, the healthiest, not just the fittest? So that's the way I kind of look at it is I, with regards to what you're saying about the guys in the Rift Valley is like, yeah, it's just as important and I feel like I'm doing a similar workload, but I'm also trying to like, spend time with my kids, work a full-time job, pay for my friggin' ability to live in the Pacific Palisades. You know, it's like... You're juggling a lot. A lot. More, a in lot. some cases. But but this is the only thing that keeps me stable, emotionally stable and on track, if you can call me emotionally stable. <laughs> my wife might disagree. What is it about the marathon at this point of your life? You're 48 years old. You've been involved in endurance sports for quite a few years now, but you've sort of shifted your focus in recent years to try and run a fast marathon. If you break 230 here tomorrow, that's a significant PR for you, lifetime PR, mm -hmm. not even just a 40 plus PR. Whereas most people, when they're in their late forties, there is a natural decline, or maybe they start tearing their goals a little bit differently, but you're aiming as high as possible and you're less than two years away from being 50. What's driving <laughs> that? Um, probably insecurity, uh, getting older, um, having this insatiable appetite or desire slash need to be relevant at something, even if it's just for myself, it's, I don't know, the thought of being mediocre at anything is just, what's the sense? I don't know. It's like, you're not good at anything. So is it fair to say it's ego driven? Yeah, I, w I would think that that's fair. There's definitely an element of ego. It, 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 it also provides me with like an outlet of aggression that you can't really let out in a, let's say a professional setting. There's that element, look, at 48 years old, I'm not going to get in the ring and fight with anyone. And, and I've boxed in the past and um, this is as close as I can get to, um, you know, combative sports is just running against other people. And, 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 and as crazy as it sounds, I, as it sounds, at the start line, I think of it like a fight. Like, I'm like, dude, I'm not looking to be friends and chit-chat with you. I'm like, let's do this. After the finish, I love everyone, and my wife will give me shit about it because she's like, you seem so nasty and aggressive before the race, and afterwards, you're everybody's best friend. And I'm like, it's such a relief to get it over with. It's like the same emotions that I felt when I was playing college football and hockey and boxing. It's like that anticipation is almost overwhelming. And, and so in, in, a, in a sense, yes, it's ego, but it's also an outlet for some of the competitive drive, if you will, just to like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I can't really relate to people who don't have anything going on in their life that they're passionate about, even if it's just work. Like I need outside interests to keep me going. I, There's something about competitiveness that is really interesting to me. I consider myself a competitive person. I loved hearing what you just described when you step on the star line. It's almost like a switch gets flipped when you start standing there and you're like, okay, it's on. We're going to do battle for the next like two and a half hours. And then once you cross the finish line, switch is off and you can be best friends. You can trade your war stories. Reminds me a lot of 
Bill Rogers, one of the greatest U.S. marathoners of all time. You meet him out on the street. He's goofy. He's really charismatic. He'll take all the time in the world to listen to your stories, tell you some of his own. And people would say when he was on the race course with you, he would literally snarl at you <laughs> while he was running alongside you because he wanted to pulverize you you know, into the ground. And I've seen it with... Kara Goucher at a race. She's the sweetest person that you'll meet outside. She'll give you all the time in the world. But when the gun goes off, she's there to throw down. And I think that's what makes a great competitor is having the ability to turn it on when you need to turn it on and focus for the amount of time that you need to focus on so you can do what it is that you set out to do. Yeah. Uh, two, uh, two or three weeks ago, I ran the uh, Malibu half marathon and um, I had won it in the, the year before two years before and then a um, former Eritrean Olympian beat me last year. I was pretty disappointed with myself, <laughs> but I gave myself a pass on that. And I guess an, uh, a former Olympian uh, is capable of still beating me. But this year I ran and there was a young kid and he looked like a legitimate runner. He actually looked like Prefontaine, had a mustache, but very young guy. That looks all the rage right now. <laughs> I know, with the short I can't shorts. get away with it, but the kids these days, they no one can get like away with it. They, they just fool themselves. In the 70s. <laughs> well, anyway, the kid, we took off and I realized quickly I was out in front into the headwind and I was like, oh, screw this. I'm not sure where my fitness is just because coming off a big training week and um i took a step back no one took the lead and i was like f it i just started running you know like my regular pace like 525 530 ish and um i got a big gap on them and at halfway maybe i had 40s to 60 second lead at the turnaround of six and a half miles so i was like all right you know i'm still running hard and uh you know pushing it and uh between seven and nine the kid got right on me and i was like oh my god in my mind i said i, I had already i was already defeated i was like god damn it i'm gonna get second for all this effort you know oh but when i realized he didn't go past me i still had like enough wits about me to be like all right this kid clearly killed himself to catch up and he got a step in front of me and i see someone on the side of the road passing him a bottle which technically as you know you really shouldn't do that not when we're running one and two so when the kid got, took the bottle from what what ended up being his dad who was a very nice guy when he took a sip of it i was like give me that bottle when you're done because it was a little warm and i hadn't taken any hydration and he's like oh it's got something in it blah blah he said something about what's in it. and i go don't worry about it if it's good for you it's good for me so then i took a few sips and threw it down and i don't know if he wanted more or not but we ran side by side for from 9 to 11 and at a, and he kept trying to put little surges on, in on me and I thought about it like a fight and I've talked about this on the boxing podcast I do with Teddy Atlas and I was like like I said I went through that emotion of like almost having a silent agreement that alright you got me I'm done and then I, when I got Snapped know, out of it. Snapped out of it. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? I put in so much effort. Don't quit yet. This guy might be on the red, on the on the limit too. So at eleven, he kept putting in these little half steps, but they were so half-assed that I was like, just kept teasing. So like, like little jabs in a boxing match. Exactly. But instead of responding to them 100, percent I just would just respond enough, almost like teasing him, like, oh, you almost got me. But I was well in control. So at eleven, I put in a few steps, and he didn't go with me. So I was like, all right, I'm all in now. Little two miles to go, and I just thought a gun in it. And then I spoke to him after. A real, really nice guy. His dad was super nice. Dad was a year older than me, by the way. Um, so he, uh, I said to him, I told him what I just told you. I said, you had me. If you ran past me with authority and he said what I thought happened, he was like, I ran so hard to get on you with, you know, I was trying to get you before you could look back and see me coming. And um, he goes, when you put in that move at 11, I knew I had nothing left. You and had hope, him on the ropes at that yeah, point. Yeah, but I didn't, you know, you never know. You just start throwing punches and hope one lands and it did. And I just 
But man, that was like, <laughs> that was the hardest earned victory I've had in a long time. Not that I've had a lot of victories, but. I'd love to shift directions a little bit yeah. and talk about your entry into endurance sports. As you just described a few minutes ago, you grew up playing hockey, you played football, you're really into boxing and did that for a little bit. When did you shift into endurance sports and what was your initial entry? So yeah, in college I played um, football and hockey at Framingham State and um, always boxed through high school and college, but just half-assed. And, and even in the call co- in, in college sports and all sports, I've always been kind of jack of all trades, master of none. I was good enough, even with golf. Like until the minute my club hits the ball, you would know. You would think like, oh, this guy might be a professional. Like I know how to look the part until it's like time to like go full speed and then you know that's kind of where you can separate the distance difference same thing with boxing like i took my son down to um the uh, wild card west in santa Mon- in santa monica uh, freddie roach's gym it's now called churchill and mike lee who was a light heavyweight champ at the time uh, 20 and 0 was working with my eight-year-old son seven at the time and uh, i was down there working out too and and mike said can you want to get in the ring and spar a little and i was like uh in my mind i'm like not a fucking chance i, I, I want to get in the ring and spar with an undefeated heavy light heavyweight champion and my son looks at me and goes dad go ahead get in there And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, I don't have a mouthpiece. And he was like, you don't need one. And I was like, oh, (laughs) we're doing this. But the same thing. It's like uh, my buddy Rob Moore was there taking pictures. And because we weren't going full speed, it didn't look like, you know, me playing one-on-one with Michael Jordan. It just looked like two guys moving in the ring casually. But, you know, the minute it got – if we picked it up, it would have been lights out. I mean, but – so in that regard, you know, I've always kind of just been – good enough to be around. And, um, you know, when I, when I moved to New York, I was boxing for the New York athletic club, working in finance and I was running to stay in shape. And eventually I started to get some overuse injuries from running like it band issues. And I got a bicycle and, um, you know, I worked with a few guys and one of them was like really into cycling and said, let's go for a bike ride. And, uh, we went for a bike ride in Central Park. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had on like gym shorts, a sleeveless t-shirt, and a helmet. You're in your 30s at the time? Yeah, pro- yeah, yeah, probably 30 to 32, something like that. I have and- a feeling I know how this turned out. <laughs> you haven't told me the story, but keep going. So we started riding and coming up the hills like the Harlem Hill and stuff. I was like, man, I don't know if this is this guy's either not that good or I'm like pretty good at this. And then that was like, that was like, that was like the spark that turned into like a bonfire of enthusiasm for cycling. And, and, and literally I did a biathlon in Central Park, like two weeks later, run, uh, run two miles, bike 12, run two. And I think I was like 20th overall. And I was like, oh my God, I don't even know what I'm doing. I bet I could win this if I started trying. And that began like this odyssey into triathlon. I didn't know how to swim. You know, I was a member at the New York Athletic Club, still am. And I started literally swimming and when people always ask me about like, how'd you get into this? How'd you get into that? It's like, if, if where there's a will, there's a way. No one ever said to me, this is how you do this. I just got in the pool. And when I saw someone who knew what they were doing, I was like, Hey dude, can you do me a favor? Just look at my stroke. Tell me like one thing you think I should work on. I'll figure out the rest. That's it. Same with cycling. I'd ride my bike with people, pick up little things. And it's funny how you can go from gym shorts and a sleeveless t-shirt to then like bike snob where the socks are a certain length. The kit has to match. It's just, it the evolution was like 
incredibly fast. And I just became obsessed with triathlon. And as a result, my running started to improve dramatically. And I just enter races here and there. So probably for 10 years, I was doing triathlons extensively. I raced in Kona three times and my runs kept getting slightly better and better. And, um, probably in the last three or four years, I've started doing like a ton more running and limited triathlons. This year I didn't do any triathlons, but in the last couple of years I was doing like two or three a year. And um, since I moved to California from New York in um, 2016, that's when I really, like I live in um, the Pacific Palisades right up against the Temescal Trailhead into the Santa Monica Mountains. And um, I mean, the running there is as nice as any place I've ever been in the world. And it's and tough it's, running. It's incredibly tough. So in 10 miles, I get like 1,500 feet of elevation gain, which when you hear that, it sounds crazy. But now it's just like, yeah, that's just the morning routine. You just get into a routine. It becomes the norm. Again, just like I said about everything being relative. How much of that transition in the last few years from triathlon to running, aside from you know, moving to California, realizing your potential is just the demands on your time because you've got fairly large family, three kids, four, four kids, wife, you work full time. You're traveling back and forth across the country more times than (laughs) I can count. Is it just a more efficient use of your training time or is it kind of a combination culmination of all of those things uh, definitely it becomes a uh a time was a factor but it was also a little bit ego driven because i was i was decent in triathlon i mean i'd have some good results i was fifth overall one time at wisconsin seventh overall once at the hawaii half ironman and in every one of those races where i've been let's say in the top 10 overall I can look at the swim time and basically in Wisconsin, the first amateur was 10 minutes ahead of me. He swam 10 minutes faster than me. My swimming is terrible, relatively speaking. If someone doesn't swim and they see me, they're like, oh, you're a sandbagger. You're a good swimmer. But I'm saying you, if, if I swim with people who know what they're doing, just like the boxing, it's like I look crazy. They're, they're swimming circles around me. But um, so, yeah, time was a bit of a factor, but um a combination of time and I started to realize if I put more effort into running, I could probably win some races and winning races is tremendous fun. What parallels do you see between running and fighting? Because we'll get into this over the course of this conversation. You host a podcast with Teddy Atlas called The Fight. You guys analyze I mean, the heavyweight fight that happened this afternoon, you can analyze that on Monday. You guys talk about what's going on in the sport, something that you were involved in as an athlete yourself uh, for many years, even though you're not you know, getting in the ring and fighting much anymore. But you've already described in this conversation how standing on the start line of a marathon is similar to standing in the ring for a fight. What other parallels do you see between the two? Like I said, when, I'm, when I think of it as preparation, just like it's for a fight. And I was just talking to uh, another guy from uh, who's on the Everyman Jack Triathlon team, which I've been on for the past several years. And he said to me, hey, are you in the Sacramento running the race? And I said, yeah. And he, I said, what about you? He's like, yeah, I'm here. I'm running too. And my first instinct, I typed it out and then I deleted it was, I'm going to kick your ass. And I was like, nah, he might not take it. I meant it. In a, I meant it in a friendly way, but in a way I was like, yeah, I'm going to kick everyone's ass. Like I desperately want to win as like, like, like I want to live. I want to win and have nothing left at the finish line. I'd rather feel good at the finish. But so to me, it's, it's almost identical, except no one's going to punch me in the face. And that is like a, some peace of mind when it comes to emptying the tank, because 
you know, when you're struggling, let's say from, you know, from the halfway mark, which I would consider like 20 miles, right? That last 10 K is you're fighting yourself. You're not getting punched in the face, but it hurts just as bad. It's just a different type of hurt. It's like people saying, would you rather run a 5k or a half marathon? I'm like, oh, which way would I rather get thrown down a flight of stairs, head first <laughs> or feet first? It, both of them suck. It's just a different type of suck, right? So I, to me, there's a million parallels. It's it's the only difference is you're not going to get punched in the face. You're not going to get necessarily knocked out, but you may pass out when you cross the finish line, which I've been close to doing a few times, which doesn't really make my wife very happy. But it's the only way. And listen, I, I, like I said, everything's relative. But to me, it's the only way in a harder race. And I'm not the fastest and I'm not the best at anything. But I only when people say, oh, I did this race, it was just a training race. I don't know, even understand that. Every race to me is a race to the death. Like I'm going to race every race to win. I don't know how to do a half marathon as a training run. You know, maybe if it was like a huge race and I had no chance of winning, but maybe, but I've never done that. I've always gone, no, I'm going to empty the tank and try to win. So where does that competitive streak come from? And here's how I'm going to set this up. We just got a puppy last week and our puppy was found at two weeks old under an abandoned camper on a trash pile, dehydrated and malnourished. And when we go to feed him now, as I was describing to you earlier, we put him in his crate so that we can get his bowl of food set up and he starts going bananas. Like he just starts losing his mind. He's pawing on the cage. You know, we can get him to sit and like wait for a minute, but you can see him. He's like shaking with excitement because he wants to eat so bad. And that's what I thought of when you were just describing how you approach a race. And where does that come from? Is that from somewhere like deep in your childhood where you've always had this insatiable appetite to try and beat people and get the most out of yourself? You know, I don't know that it's as much an excitement to like get out there and race and yay, I'm having fun per se. I think it's more like I sign up for these things and when I get to the finish line, I'm so scared of having a bad race that the fear of failure is so much more motivating to me than the joy of, than the thrill of victory. I, I, if that makes sense. Like I'm just put myself in these positions where I'm like, Oh my God, this, I I really don't want to embarrass myself here. I hope this goes well. I've kind of put my goals out there for the whole world to see. I'm not shy about sharing what I want to do and what I think I can do. And then when it comes down to crunch time, you're like, I mean, many times I've woken up and thought, Oh, what can I do to get out of this? Can I fake an injury? And then I realize it's just me. The only person I'm faking is me. The only person I'm lying to is me if I do that. And, and, and the same thing with not finishing a race. I'm the only person that I have to answer to. And one of the things Teddy Atlas, one of the things that Teddy Atlas talks about on our podcast is um, being a game quitter. It's much more painful and much more difficult to quit than it is to stick it out and give your best. Because you have to live with that quit and that failure for a fucking long time. And the pain of suffering through, especially a race where someone's not trying to like literally kill you, you can do this. And I just, you know, you get up and I find myself going through the motion. It's almost like I'm on autopilot because in my heart, I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to put myself out there. I don't want to like be exposed like that, 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 that fear of failing is like incredibly powerful for me. But like I said, the, the, the pain of not giving your all is like lasts with me forever. And, and as I said earlier, I'm the only one that cares and I know that, but I care. 
you know, I care if I fail and I care if I didn't give a hundred percent. And it's, I don't know, it's like a mental exercise for me. So what's failure for you? Is failure losing the race? Is failure not hitting the time that you're setting out to get? Or is failure not getting the best out of yourself when you look back at it afterward? I think failure would be not getting the best out of myself if I finish and feel like I could have done better. I mean, if I ran 225 and thought like, God damn, if I, if I ran a little hotter at the beginning, I bet I could have held on to the end and got a little faster. Obviously, that's an extreme example. I'd be psyched to do that. But my wife gives me shit about this all the time. The first time when I ran 233 uh, a couple years ago, I had a goal of running 236. I had only run 240 before. And when I finished, I was like, I came in third in Tucson. Um, a, a young army kid, military kid beat me by three minutes. And the kid in second was 11 seconds ahead of me. And when I finished, I was like talking to my wife and she's like, wow, that's incredible. And I was like, oh, can't believe I didn't get the kid for second. I could see him. And she's like, are you insane? You ran so much faster than you thought you could even humanly run. But I don't know. That's the way it always is. I always feel like, mm, could I have done something different? And I'm not saying this. Hey, look at me. I'm like trying to kill myself to be the best. I don't. I don't think I'm the best. I, I, I think that, again, relatively speaking, I'm just a regular dude who's trying to like fill voids in his life. So how important is it for you to have this filler in your life? What void? Critically, nothing else happens if I don't get to exercise and do this training. It's, it will be horrible situation for everyone. What void is it filling? Uh, maybe some sort of validation that I'm like relevant in something other than like, I mean, I think that I'm a, a pretty good dad and, uh, I'm probably a better dad than I am a husband. I I could be a lot better with regards to some aspects of my life. But this is, I don't know, it's filling a void that, you know, I'm I'm not the best at anything and I'm close. I, I, I feel like I could be the best in my age group in the country and running on the right day. I think I can do that. And um, I don't know that that's just... It's hard to explain. It, it fills a physical competitive void that's people don't most people don't get in their lives, which I don't understand. I, I I can't relate to someone who doesn't have like physical interests and like ways of getting. Even if it's you know, if you're limited in one area, maybe there's something else you can do. You can swim or you can do CrossFit. I you know I just how much of it is being the one thing that you have full control over. No, that's a big point. That's a big part of it because, um, yeah, not a lot of people have a lot of control over things in their lives, right? You, you have a family. You don't have control over what your kids do. I can tell you that <laughs> if, you, if you don't have kids and you want to uh, get an exercise in um, learning to accept the things that you can't control, uh, having children is a perfect example. I'm very uh, anal and neat and organized. And when you have kids, you better like get rid of that trait immediately because there's constant chaos in the house and kids doing crazy shit all the time, like poking the dog, you know, not trying to hurt her. But like this morning, one of them was trying to push the dog down the stairs because she's not being down the stairs. So I come out and gave him a little whack on the bum. And then he starts crying to my wife. It's like, why'd you give him a whack? I'm like, because he's going to throw the dog down the stairs. And it's just like, you know, you you made a good point is that that could be it. It's like, that's the one thing that's all me. You know, it's like, I get out of it what I put into it. And, um, you know, that it just motivates me to have something that I can feel proud of at the end of the day. I'd love to go back to your upbringing 
One thing we share in common is we're both from Massachusetts. You grew up in Somerville. What was your childhood like? Um, I think it will be quite surprising to some of the people who only know me as an adult because um, I grew up in inner city, blue collar Somerville. And um, it was looking back now, it was challenging. When you're a kid, you don't know any better. It's just what you know. Like, well, you don't know any different. Yeah, you don't know. You don't know that everyone doesn't get the shit slapped out of them with a belt every single day. You don't know that other people don't get like hit like that. You just think that that's. You know, only till I had my own children did I realize how insane it was, as crazy as that sound. But I, um, yeah, I grew up like very involved in sports. My parents were divorced. My my mother was remarried, um, and my dad would come and get me, take me to sports. So I was heavily involved in uh, primarily ice hockey, and um, that was like the, the the most important thing to me as a child for my entire childhood until I went to college, really, and. Um, I had two younger brothers that were like real problem kids. Um, well, the young, my, my, I have one brother who's 11 months younger who was really a troubled kid and, um, you know, always involved in drugs and crime. And then I have a, a eight year young, another brother who's eight years younger who's, um, not as involved in crime, but definitely involved in drugs. And um, while I went to college, I worked as a um, correction officer at um, the Billerica House of Correction outside of Boston uh, Men's Prison. And and coincidentally, um, my younger brother, the the one who's a year, eight, eleven years younger, he was an inmate in that prison uh, shortly after I stopped working there. But interestingly, <laughs> it's a funny story. My when I was in like the sixth or seventh grade, I think that was how old I was. My stepfather was sentenced to that prison for like two or three years. Well, you know, when you're a kid and your stepfather who lived with me and my mother and my two brothers goes to prison, it's like overwhelming. You know, it's like I had a paper out and I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to give all my paper out money to like help pay the rent and pay the bills. And it was, it was traumatic to say the least. So then going and working there was just like pretty surreal pretty surreal, depressing. I mean, it's a fucking terrible job, a terrible place. Why'd you take it? <laughs> it's funny you asked that. In hindsight, I didn't really, it, I mean, I guess I had a choice, but I needed a job because I had to pay for school. And I literally started at that prison like a week after I um, graduated high school. So I went down to the uh, prison. They sent me a letter, said, get this stuff. This is way before cell phones. They sent me a letter in the mail, said, get these. Um, a guy who was the, the warden of the prison was the high school football coach at one of our rival schools. And we played against him. And I played quarterback in high school. And um, the guy said to me after the game, what are you going to do for uh, work? And I said, I, I don't know. And he said, all right, come and see me. I'm, I'm at the house correction. I mean, I knew who he was. So when they sent me the letter, they said, get these uniforms. I just assumed I'd be cutting grass or something. So I get the uniforms and they're literally like police uniforms. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I wonder what we're going to be doing. We get up there and we do like four hours of um, classroom. And then they're like, all right, here we go into the prison. So now we're walking. So you're 18 years old and you get thrown in to be in a prison guard? Yes. Jesus. And, you know, like in a, like a legit men's prison. And as um, soon as we walk in... One of the inmates who I know from the street, because I, people might people who didn't grow up this like this might find this crazy, but like you know most of the inmates having grown up there, like 
prison is very segregated, right? Whites, blacks, Hispanics, and a small group of Asians, and they stick together, and there's no real, there's no real uh, intermingling, if you will. And uh, so when I walk in there, one of the uh, white uh, Irish inmates comes running over and picks me up like on his shoulder and starts like running around with me like I'm a little kid. And I'm thinking, oh, dude, put me down. You know, I know him from, <laughs> I, know, I know him really well from the streets. He was friends with my uncle who lived in the floor below us, who was a lifelong heroin addict. And uh, I was like, dude, put me down. The other guards are watching. He's like, oh, all right, take it easy. And then, you know, the other in- guards are looking at me like, the guards were who worse Who is this than guy? The- yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it very- but basically what he was doing there is telling the other inmates, like, oh, I know this kid. He's cool. Like, in other words... He's he's cool. Don't don't f with this guy. He's all right. And you know you still it's still one of those things where you have to like earn all your respect and you have to like let them know that it's enough for you to know that I'm gonna do what I have to do. So don't you know don't 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 put me in an awkward position where you're gonna do shit that should be reported and you're gonna think I'm not I'm gonna I'm not gonna take a, a, a responsibility for your bad behavior. So don't do things in front of me that you don't want reported. Or don't do illegal things in front of me. You know what I mean? And it was like, it, it basically established with everyone like, okay, this kid's all right. Because some people got harassed, like you can't imagine. I, I equate it to being a teacher at like a reform high school. Like a school full of fresh kids, teasing teachers and shit. That's what it's like. If you have a pen in your pocket, they'll take it, hand it to someone else. And the next thing you know, you're like, well, what are you going to do? You're going to like write the guy, uh, put him in isolation for taking your pen. It's kind of like you live and you learn like next time, don't bring a pen. <laughs> they, you know, they're always trying to get over on you and little tests like that. So it was, a, um, it was an interesting experience, but the, 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 the part I wanted to come back to about my, um, my, my mother's husband, after he gets out of the, <laughs> after he gets out of prison, you, you couldn't make this shit up. Guess where this son of a bitch gets a job? At the prison? The fucking janitor of my high school. Oh. And I'm a freshman in high school. At the time that happened, it was literally like, I don't know what's the most embarrassing thing that could ever happen to you, but like, you know, your ex-convict stepfather is the janitor at your high school. I, I just remember thinking, like, not sleeping for a week and thinking, like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe you guys would do this to me. I mean, I told them, but they were like, tough luck. Hey, we're taking a quick break because I want to tell you about our sponsor for this episode. It's my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. Tracksmith's products are designed to solve the problems that are unique to the experience of amateur training and racing – Whether that's building the perfect pair of tights for chilly New England long runs or making split shorts that are just the right weight and with the right number of pockets for a marathon, Tracksmith designers sweat the details. That also means they only work with the finest materials from soft and wicking merino wool in their base layers to water-repellent four-way stretch dry skin in their bislet pants. Whether you're training through the depths of winter or you need a special race day outfit to help power your next PR, Tracksmith has you covered. I personally own a ton of Tracksmith gear, and I train and race in it all the time, including last month at the New York City Marathon. Still looking for a gift for the runner in your life, or maybe you just want to buy a little something for yourself? Check out their gift guide, personally selected by staff members and friends, including yours truly. I shared my own selection, the Harrier Longsleeve, and you can check out other ideas at tracksmith.com slash gifts. Follow them on Instagram at tracksmithrunning, and do your shopping at tracksmith.com. My thanks to Tracksmith for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. 
What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned in your time as a prison guard? How long were you a prison guard, number one? Four years while I went to college. I basically worked there full-time in the summers, and then I would work a few shifts a week, a few shifts per week, like 4 to 12, sometimes midnight to 8. And the guy, the the senior people there, they liked me. They knew I was hustling and trying to like get through with college and just trying to do this all on my own. And uh, so they would put me like in the guard tower on the overnight shift so I could study and no one's escaping from a prison over coming out of the window and jumping over the fence most likely right so you would just get up there and it would just be eight hours of boredom this is before cell phones tv like there was no tv it was just sitting in a dark tower and i'd do my homework and study whatever i had to do but in terms of um lessons i'll tell you the most the, the biggest lesson that i learned there was i did not want to have that as a career it was literally the worst job to this day that I've ever had. And it really, I mean, when I went to college, I was just viewing that as an extension of um, playing an opportunity to play football and hockey. And um, as I started to get down into my third and fourth year, and I, I know this will sound crazy to people that went to college, and it's one of like the biggest regrets in my life is that I, had I had some guidance in someone's telling me like, yo, you, you got to think about what you're going to do when you get out of college. It's just like, I was just putting it off, like doing homework. You know, I was like, oh, I'll figure that out when I get there. I mean, I majored in sociology because kids on the football team told me that was the easiest major to take. And which sounds crazy, but that's what happens when you're 18 and no one you know went to college and no one in your house, like, I mean, I filled out the applications by myself. No one told me how to do this. No one else went had ever gone to college. I, fi I filled out the forms for financial aid and everything. So when, um, as I was going through the motions into my third and fourth year, I like really started to pick up the pace and start to think about what am I going to do when I get out of here? And, um... Yeah, that was the biggest lesson I learned at the prison was like, dude, this is, you, you got to get your shit together and start hustling. This is not where you want to be. I do not want to be working an hourly job the rest of my life. How did you stay on a straighter path than your siblings and other people that you were surrounded with growing up? That's a good question because even as when I was a little kid, my family, my immediate family, they used to... Um, they used to call me arrogant and conceited and, 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 and say that I think that I'm better than them. And at the time I did, I, I did, I, I believed that I felt that. And I, and I probably acted like that a lot because I don't know why or how I had no like, um, metric for what was successful and what wasn't. I just knew that the way these people were living wasn't for me. And I, I, I can't tell you why. I just always wanted to be to do better than what they were doing. I didn't want to live paycheck to paycheck. I didn't want to think about, I didn't want to think about money. And, and not that I don't think about money now, but it's not like I'm going to be in a panic if I didn't work for a month. It's, it's, you know, and so when that reality hit me and I was working in the prison, I was like, dude, I got to get my shit together. And I, as soon as I got out of college, I moved to, um, New York and took an entry-level finance job and things just moved incredibly fast. I was really lucky about a lot of things, but I mean, after being in New York for probably two or three years, I got a job running um, European and Asian commodities sales and trading for Kenner Fitzgerald. And uh, literally they paid for a like incredible apartment in uh, London, an entire Muse house. I you know, made some foolish purchases when I was like flush with cash and no rent and no responsibility. It was just, it just went incredibly fast. And in hindsight, I, 
I realize how lucky I was to have some breaks, but I put myself in position to be prepared to take advantage of that luck. Um, but yeah, it was uh, interesting. Is, we, we could do a whole other podcast <laughs> for like 10 hours on all the things that uh, happened in my professional career. Did you know at some point right after college that you were never going to return to Somerville or did you have more of an open mind and you were just going to see where your career took you in terms of geography and also advancement in your career field? I knew, I knew I was never going back there. And, 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 and I have some friends there that I love. They're literally like my brothers. I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to be around the people that I didn't love there. And, and there were a lot of bad, um, bad, um, habits that I picked up, you know, right when I graduated from college, I was drinking and doing drugs with my friends. And like, we would just, it was just an appetite for destruction. Is this while you were in New York? Uh, no, right before I moved to New York. So like through my junior and senior year, I was still studying and grinding, but on the weekends I was like getting banged up. Like, you know, all the, all the bad things that you could imagine, like 20 somethings doing in, uh, at those, at that time and getting into fights and just, just being an idiot, like a young kid, like, you know, and, and I knew that the only way I could get my shit together was to separate myself from that situation and kind of travel in different circles and like I said some of those guys that I'm friends with I mean I'm still friends with them I would do anything for them matter of fact one of them went to prison it it sounds crazy because if you had known us in high school and college he was like his parents were the most successful he was the best guy he got hooked on um opioids and then started buying in bulk so he could have his for free and then selling some and got caught selling them and went to prison it still seems crazy for me to even say it it would be so we, he had come down to visit me and my wife at uh, her parents' house in Shelter Island. Uh, they had a house on the beach, like out in the Hamptons. And uh, he came, my buddy came down with, I don't, I don't want to say his name, but my buddy came down with his wife and their kids. And like a year later, he ends up going to prison. So I was sending him some like letters and occasionally send him some money for his commissary. And he would send me letters back. <laughs> And I would read them out loud to my wife. And I think that she was like, she's probably still traumatized from them because he's a really funny guy, but he's the type of kid that like would get into a fight every day after high school. Like kids from other high schools would come down to fight him because they heard he was like a tough guy. And he was, he was like a lunatic. But, um, so that's kind of an an example of some of the people I grew up with. Um, so when I moved to New York, I was just, yeah, I, I knew, I knew I wasn't going back there. There was nothing for me. And, um, I mean, even now I, my children haven't been back there, um, since they've been born. It's just once I got out of there, even with my parents, we just have a difficult relationship and, um, you know, I kind of created my own family and, um, I'm not looking to expose them to the things I was exposed to. Your kids are pretty young right Mm -hmm. now. Do they know much about your upbringing or will you tell them more about it at some point? Yeah, they know. I've probably, in hindsight, made the mistake of telling them a little bit too much too young because they'll, they, 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 my wife yells at me about this all the time. You know, when, when it comes to my relationship with my parents, the kids don't understand because they still will talk with my, through my wife, with my, uh, with my dad. And my dad's wife is excellent. She's a super nice person, is like really squared away, nurse practitioner, like 
just a really nice person. So the kids are a little like confused by the fact that I don't speak to anyone. But um, <laughs> the one thing that's funny is my, my kids will love to hear my wife tell stories. My wife has uh, went to Vanderbilt and has a sign and got a teaching degree and has a sign language degree and just like is, is the best teacher ever. And um, she'll tell them like really creative stories at night. And then sometimes we'll be like, Dad, can you tell us a story? I'm like, uh, you know, read the first couple of times. I was like, read a story? They're like, no, no, make one up. Tell us a story that happened to you. And they were like, do you have a story about bullies? And I was like, oh, all right, I could tell you a story about uh, in prison when I was driving a guy to work, a van full of inmates, like 12 inmates to work release. Oh, no, I was driving them to a drug meeting. They were in a work release program, so they were on a minimum security unit. And we would take them to like, you know, it, you don't just get released from maximum security. You kind of go through a minimum security uh, work release. And, and as a result, you get to go to like off campus AA meetings or off the grounds, AA meetings in the city, in, in Cambridge. So I'm driving the van and there's like maybe five white guys, five black guys, but they're convicts. I mean, there's no, there's no nice guys in there. I mean, they're, they're cool. They're decent people, but I mean, everyone in there has been, you got to like be guilty to get convicted nine times out of 10. You know, you got to do a lot of bad things before you get sent to prison short of killing someone. And uh, so, you know, these are, they're criminals. And um, one of them apparently got caught drinking outside the AA meeting because they're going to these AA meetings just to get out of jail for the day and go see people. So um, they have a, a plainclothes security people that follow us around from time to time. You just never know where they're going to be. And they must have saw this guy drinking. And they said to me, hey, one of the guys comes by me discreetly and says, when you get back to the building, stop at the main building. We're going to take this XYZ guy. He, he was drinking. And I was like, okay, I'm indifferent. I could care less. The van's not locked. It's just me. Again, I'm 18. I probably look 15 in my policeman uniform with all these inmates in an unlocked van. So they must have caught, the dude must have caught wind that they were going to like lug him back to the main building. So as we're driving back, I see them. And again, it's segregated. So all the black guys are sitting in the back and I, and I see them huddling up and I'm like, oh, here we go. Now what? So we're at a red light in, in Somerville, actually, funny enough. And the guy, I see him like making a, uh, making a beeline for the door, the side door. I'm like, God damn. So I reach over to grab him, but we're still in park and the van starts to slowly roll out into traffic. So I'm holding on to him and holding on to the steering wheel and I just let him go, put the van in park and the guy jumps out of the van and he looks at me and he said, I said, dude, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, I'm jetting. And I was like, where are you going? And he's like, I'm getting out of here. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you right now, I'm going to count to three. If you don't get back in the van, I'm leaving. I'm not doing this. And he and and his buddies were there and they're kind of going back and forth. And I said, guys, they're going to catch him and he's going to pick up another charge. If you get in right now, we're going to forget this even happened. And the guy eventually just got in the van and we went back and I just, I couldn't be bothered telling anyone about what happened. I was just like, but those are the bedtime stories you're telling your kids. Yeah. So that's what I told them. <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and my kids were listening and they're like, then what happened? I said, then I drove back to the jail and I stopped at the main building and they came out with the handcuffs and they took them back in. And, uh, and I said, you know what the moral of this story is, guys? Don't snitch. <laughs> and they were like, huh? And that's when my wife was like, dude, they don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, I'm just kidding. The, the moral of the story is just be a good person. You don't ever have to worry about getting caught drinking at an AA meeting. <laughs> How did you and your wife meet? Um, that's a funny story. Actually, I was, when I was in London, I was, um, I ran the sales and trading for all commodities in Europe and, um, a young kid, a company called me and said, Hey, we have this young kid. He's going to do an internship with you for four weeks. 
And I just like went off the rails. I'm like, you, you do? Who, who told you to call me? I'm not, I got no use for like some kid whose parents paid for an internship in London. So I'm going to babysit this kid. I just went off. And they were like, oh, so-and-so told me to call. I go, I don't even know so-and-so. The answer is no. And then they call back again. And I don't know how, but I said, have the kid call me. And I was just going to yell at him. And then the kid called me, and he was like this young Jewish kid from uh, suburban New Jersey, and he went to a school called the Pingree School, which coincidentally my wife went to. Obviously, I didn't know this at the time. but and, and, and he talked to me, and I was like so impressed with the kid that I was like, you know what? You can do it. You can come. You can come here. So they put him up in like college dorms for the summer that weren't being used, and he sat with me for four weeks. And as he's sitting there, I'm like, dude, this business is so easy. You should start this business yourself, and I'll help you find the internships. You handle all the logistics, and I can help you. And long story short, he did it. His senior year in high school, he had like 40 kids come to New York and do an internship. He ended up going to Cornell and got out of there in five years with an MBA. But he set up a business that, I forget what it was called, like career exploration or something. And all these kids with wealthy parents would pay like seven grand to be put up at the Juilliard School on the Upper West Side and do these um, internships for no pay. But they were getting experience for their resumes and going to college. And one of the um, activities was that professionals from different fields would come and speak to the kids. And so Seth asked me to um, come and talk to the kids. And I was like, oh, I hate public speaking. I don't want to do this. And he was like, I really need you to do it. And I was like, I knew I had no choice. So anyway, I went there. There was another guy on the panel who was like a talent booker at like a modeling agency and an acting agent, something like that. And he, he said to me, hey, I'm going out and uh, some, I'm meeting some friends. So I went with him and it was just Shelby, my wife. And I said, uh, dude, where are all the friends? Because I mean, I was interested in my wife, but I'm like, what am I going to do with this guy now? It's just the three of us. So he's like, well, I kind of, I said, I'm going to ask this girl out when she went to the bathroom. He's like, well, I kind of invited her for myself. I'm like, then why did you bring me? So as soon as he went to the bathroom, I told her the whole story, and she was like, let's get out of here. And we left and (laughs) got married a few years later. (laughs) So you guys have four kids. Your daughter, you adopted from... Oh, by the way, the connection was that those... My my wife, the kid who invited me to go out with him, and the young kid who I was helping with the internships, they all went to the same private high school in New Jersey, Pingree. That was the connection. So that's how they knew each other. Yes. So when I went out... They were classmates. My wife and the kid who invited me were classmates. And, and then the younger kid obviously was several years behind them in high school. So that was like kind of the connection. You and your wife have four kids, three of your own. You adopted a daughter from Ethiopia. Take me through that trajectory and how your family ended up where it is now. Uh, well, are you trying to make me cry? Maybe. <laughs> I always get teary when I think about my daughter. Um Yeah, when my wife and I got married, I think just from my own childhood, I knew that I had, based on my childhood and what I had now in my life, what I had then and what I have now, I just, it sounds crazy. I'm not trying to be, um, uh, look for um, congratulations or sympathy or anything. This is just the truth. I I felt like I got to do something to give back to help someone else. I've been so lucky. I mean, I have a degree from sociology. I'm an idiot. I I grew up in horrible conditions and now I live in the Palisades. I'm far from rich, but I have like a life that at the time when I was a child, I couldn't even imagine having a life like this. So I genuinely felt like I've got to do something to give back. And I've always wanted to adopt and give someone, give uh, a kid maybe with similar circumstances, maybe different circumstances, but challenging circumstances, a chance 
to like have a good life. So when I met my wife, she knew this and she wanted, she wanted to adopt too. We were on the same page. So when we got married, we started trying to have children and um, we had gone through like three miscarriages, seven rounds of in vitro. She wasn't getting pregnant and we didn't, there was no, um, there, there were no medical issues. They were just like, mm, I don't know if anything, my wife is super healthy. They almost felt like her um, body was fighting off the pregnancy, almost like a foreign, like a foreign body, like a disease which essentially is what was happening. She'd get pregnant and then immediately have miscarriage. So we started the adoption process. Again, we were always going to do it. And as it turns out, the, the, uh, the, the process went through. We started out saying, let's do a domestic, uh, a foreign adoption from a place where we can make the most difference. Because using myself as an example, I've always felt if you're born in this country, you're good. You, you'll be okay. If you want to win, you'll win. I mean, look at... Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, those guys weren't born with a silver spoon. Those guys had their own challenging circumstances, and this speaks nothing to their politics. It's just a fact. I mean, Barack Obama is like biracial living in Hawaii. That guy was like, you couldn't have had more of a, been dealt more of a bad hand in terms of society in that back in the late 60s or 60s whenever he was born. But he's just an example of like, if you want to win, you, you'll win. You can do it. And, um, so I've always felt that. So I said, let's see, where can we make the most difference? And then when you go into an international adoption, there's only so many countries that you can adopt from. So that limits, that narrows the field. And then Ethiopia was just a path of least resistance. We didn't set out saying, let's adopt uh, an African child. We just wanted to adopt a baby. And it just ha so happened that it was Ethiopia. And... Um, so while we're there adopting her, I went over for a week with my wife. We adopted her in court. Um, the day we took custody of her, I had to go back to New York to work. And so my wife and I were there alone for the first week. And it was like we were at this resort. She must have got pregnant during that week. And um, I came home, was home for four weeks and went back. And in that time, she's like, oh, man, I don't feel good. But, you know, we had seven, uh, seven failed in vitros and three miscarriages. I wasn't getting my hopes up. I was like, it is what it is. You know, I wasn't like sweating it. And uh, she was pregnant. I went back, took a pregnancy test. And. Uh, so she lived there for two months with custody of my daughter, who was deathly sick. She was like seven pounds at four months old. I mean, had like giardia, was like, Damn. I mean, deathly sick. Like in the in, in emergency room in Addis Ababa, like seven times in eight weeks. It was it was scary. I mean, she was losing weight at one point. We're like, what the hell's wrong with her? Well, she was lactose intolerant. They kept giving her like um, cow milk at the at the uh, at the orphanage before we got her. So once we got her, we figured it out. And when my wife came home, we went literally. We went from the airport to the hospital, and um, she. You know, we realized we were having a son and he was due on my daughter's first birthday. And so, I mean, very quickly we went from like no kids to two kids. I mean, we had my daughter for at home really for like seven months, eight months before my first son was born. And then every two years after they were all, all the birthdays are like within five weeks to at one year interval for the first two and then two years for the next two boys. And then I have the, so I have three biological white boys and my little Ethiopian princess Tensei. What is the dynamic like in the household? Um, for dog lovers, just imagine having four puppies that don't listen and don't do anything you're trying to get them to do. It's kind of like that. But when they're being nice, it's like the greatest experience ever. It's just like anything in life. It's all like ups and downs. Like I said, this morning, one's trying to throw the dog down the stairs. Not 
because he's trying to throw down the stairs. They know she's not allowed upstairs. I'm definitely allergic to the dog, by the way. And um, but they wanted the dog, and and part of the negotiation was, look, you like to do these events that you like to do and travel and uh, go back and forth to New York twice a month to record the podcast. We want a dog. Everyone does except you. And I was like, you know, you got to pick your battles like every anything in life. So I just said, fine, let's get a hypoallergenic. And they were like, no, no, we want this Weimariner dog. I'm like. Okay, so literally, like, I'm using an inhaler, which I've never used in my life because I'm so allergic to the dog, but the kids love it, and it <laughs> seems crazy to even say it, but, yeah, that's just what you do. How aware is your daughter of her story, and how aware of your other kids of your daughter's story, and how do you guys talk about that as a family? That's an interesting topic. She's hyper-aware of being different, and she hates it, and it, and it, and it, it, it makes me so incredibly sad because... <clears throat> She, I try to explain to her how proud she should feel and, 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 and always point out to her like great Ethiopians in history, especially runners and, um, you know, all the great Ethiopian leaders and emperors. And, um, recently we've got back in touch with her birth mom. And it's funny because my daughter is like, um, I said, Tensei, dude, would you like to eventually go and see Fora? And he's, she's literally like, no, no, maybe when I'm older. So she's very aware of her situation and she hates being, she, let me rephrase. She doesn't hate being different. She doesn't hate being black, which she would never let you call her black. She's brown. She would, I said to her, oh, there are other black kids. She's like, who are you calling? I, I asked her if there were other black kids in her school. She said, who are you calling black? I said, well, that's what they call people with brown skins. And then she goes, yeah, but my skin's not br- black. It's brown. That's how like naive and like, uh, 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 unprejudiced kids are at an early age. They don't, they don't even understand. This is all like, all this racist shit is like learned behavior. And listen, I grew up in one of the most racist places on earth. Like I can still remember like the forced busing when I was a kid in South Boston and it was like chaos. And anyway, um, but she doesn't mind being different color. She hates being adopted hates it. And my dad was adopted. My, my, my wife's brother adopted twin, uh, Mexican boys. Um, this ton and my, my, her other brother is married to, um, a, um, Vietnamese girl. So they have, you know, mixed Vietnamese, half white, half Vietnamese children. So, so it's like, she sees different races and stuff. She just doesn't, she, she hates it. Doesn't like, doesn't want to talk about it. Doesn't address it. It's, you know, the mind of a child, you know, it's like, so that, that's very challenging for me because, you know, you want to protect the the kids from everything. And that's probably like one of my biggest downfalls as a dad. I'm like not overprotective of them physically, but emotionally, I don't want anyone fucking with these kids. Like, you know, if if they're like, so-and-so said this to me, I said, well, you should tell him that you're going to give him a smack in the mouth. And my wife is like, dude, what are you doing? And I'm like, you're right, sorry. <laughs> I just get so protective sure. of them. And um, but yeah, my, um, it's it's been an interesting experience, but one that I think is going to make all of them better people in the long run. She's the oldest of the four. How yeah. protective are the three brothers of their sister? Not nearly as protective of her as she is of them. them? If that house lit on fire, she'd run through a f- she she would run through the fire to get them where the boys would be like, Dad, the house on fire, what should we do? No, Tensei is like I mean, she's she she she'd jump on a grenade. Like you you can't teach someone that. You know what I mean? Like you can't teach that instinct and she has it. She's just like if if someone's messing with those boys, she would like 
you know, bite the ass off a bear to protect them. I mean, she's, but they they get it. They know, they, they know if someone, I tell them all the time, what happens if you mess with one of us? And they'll all say, you're getting all of us. But I've tried to like instill that in them, but, but, but we also would never tolerate bully behavior either. So they know that there's a fine line between right. when to defend yourself and when to stick up for someone and when to like be nice and help, you know, and, and, and helpful and not to push it. I'm Again, they're little. So it's like, it's a fine line because I'm trying to explain this stuff to them and my wife will pull me aside and be like, you realize we live in the Pacific Palisades. There hasn't been a fight here since like 72. And I'm like, <laughs> and she's like, they didn't grow up like you. And I'm like, cause I'm telling them, you know, listen, if someone puts their hands on you, you know, if someone's bothering you, you can ask them three times nicely to stop before you like have to get physical. And they're like, well, dad, if someone pushes me, I go, no, no, once they push you, it's on. Punch them in the mouth. And my wife's like, don't tell them to hit anyone. They're going to like be hitting everyone. So you got to catch yourself quite yeah, often. often, often. But a couple more things before we wrap up here. I'd love to get into boxing just yeah. a little bit. We've talked about it throughout the course of this conversation. When did that come into your life specifically? Um, either from an interest standpoint or from an involvement standpoint? Well, from an interest standpoint, I've been interested as a young kid. And when I worked in the prison, actually, Mickey Ward was a guard with me who, you know, fought uh, Arturo Gotti in three legendary fights, three of the best fights ever. I mean, the first fight is arguably one of the best fights in the history of boxing. More Mickey Ward versus Arturo Gotti one. If listeners haven't seen that one, I would encourage you to watch it on YouTube. You will not be able to, like, turn, divert your gaze. Um so working there and being friend, working in the prison in my uh, late teens with Mickey was a big impact because he was just a club fighter when I knew him. And then one night I turn on the TV and he's fighting Arturo Gotti on HBO and he wins. It's just shock, shock the world. He was considered an opponent, <clears throat> which typically means you're going to lose. Um, and his brother, if you saw the movie The Fighter, his brother right. Dickie Eklund was an inmate there when I was a guard. So like that whole story, The Fighter, took place while I was working with Mickey. I mean, it was obviously played by Mark Wahlberg in, in, in way after the fact. But um, that that further cemented my interest in the sport. And then I've just always been interested through my adult life and always I've gone to all the big fights. I saw Mike Tyson fight in Denmark when I was living in London. Um, when I was at Canner, we sponsored Audley Harrison who won the 2000 Olympic gold in heavyweight division. I became friends with him in London. And um, about 18 months ago, my buddy Rob Moore, who's a PR guy, he started working for um, Teddy Atlas as his uh, kind of PR person slash manager. And Teddy was going through some challenges with ESPN and they had taken him off the air from calling fights for some disagreements he had with um, Top Rank and Bob Arum about the way Teddy was pointing out corruption, etc. in boxing. And the promoters obviously didn't like it. And um, so they've been taking him off some of the um, telecasts and Rob got involved and Rob's an incredibly talented PR management person and um, he's done some work for the guy who I know you've spoken to before um, in Jesse Itzler who's a really nice guy a good friend of mine and um, Rob and I went and did a uh, an event with Jesse called 29029 in Utah where you walk up and down this mountain until you get to the total of ascending 29,000 29 feet the equivalent of Everest and uh, during that time Rob said listen Teddy is having this um problem his voice he, he wants to keep his voice out there so i think that i'm gonna launch a podcast for him would you be interested in co-hosting it with him and i was like are you kidding i would do anything to co-host a podcast about boxing with teddy so i met teddy um like i said about maybe now 14 months ago in january we launched the podcast and um 
it's been unbelievable. It's been, uh, I mean, I'm in New York probably twice a month on average. Just and, to record the podcast? Yeah, record the podcast. We've interviewed some legendary fighters. We had Rosie Perez on, who's a huge boxing fan. Um, and then last in the summer, Teddy asked me to go into training camp with him and be his assistant trainer for Alex Vosdick, who was the WBC light heavyweight champ, and he was fighting Artur Beterbiev for the IBF and WBC titles, a unification fight. It was a mega fight, but because they're Eastern Europeans, they didn't necessarily have the audience that like a Canelo Alvarez has, but I mean, this fight in boxing circles was considered like a potential fight of the year. So I was with Teddy for eight weeks in Philadelphia as his assistant trainer, and it was uh, it was an incredible experience and then unfortunately our guy got uh, knocked out in the 10th round it was incredibly painful uh, emotionally for all of us especially the fighter and um, but you know the, it's just all part of life you, 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 you life is like a fight you don't have to win every round to be the champion you just have to be at the end of the at the, when the final bell sounds you just have to be ahead on the scorecards and you know that's one round that you know in this case my friend Alex didn't win but that doesn't determine the the outcome of his life nor does it uh, determine the outcome of my life or teddy's life it's just you know a kick in the ass and you have to learn from it and you know i've heard people say there's no losses there's only learning experiences in life and that's kind of how you have to view it it was a long time to be in camp to come away with a disappointing result because in my mind i had never even conceived of us losing the fight I mean, I was so confident. I was like, uh, I should bet a hundred grand on this. We're going to kill this guy. I didn't do that. But, you know, it's like when he lost, it was just, oh man, it was devastating emotionally. It was, you know, surreal. Um, you could say the same thing about running. It's the same metaphor. hundred uh, percent. And you've described that very well over the course of this conversation. But I, I love that. And it's like, if you can step outside yourself and take a look at how you're preparing for this fight and how you get through it and how that fits into your overall trajectory as a fighter or you know take a look at your training and how all those workouts come together and how these tune-up races go into big races and like we put so much pressure on like oh if I don't run sub 230 tomorrow you know at CIM I'm, I'm going to be a failure but it's like no it's not about that that's just like a checkpoint along the way it's not a real endpoint of any sort no that's right and, and in my mind right now yeah it would be an epic failure but i've tried and failed three times to do that but it never it never affected my um my commitment to get it done it's just like oh damn it now i gotta spend another 10 to 12 weeks of training to get back to this it's so far to run to miss by so short it's just like it just hardens my resolve to do it again it sucks at the time and i can't even conceive of it not happening tomorrow but if it does and that's a funny thing when we were in camp with uh teddy there was never we never spoke of the possibility of losing nothing about losing so it was funny when we got to the fight there was a cut man that they brought in just for the fight the cut man just shows up works the fight and that's it that's his only job he's not in camp with us so i know teddy's mentality and i know how what is expected from him from being there eight weeks 24 7 with him and the cut man says hey let me get some vaseline inside your nose you know we just want to get it you know he's an older guy like a typical exactly what you would imagine an old cut man to look like and uh he says let's put this vaseline in your nose just so it's not dry in case you get hit in the first round and i was like in my mind in my mind i'm like oh my god oh my god and as soon as he said it he's like malcolm no 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 we're not going to get hit in the nose and get a cracked nose early in the fight. What are you talking about? And it was like just such a good reminder of like we're not going to think about anything negative. So in my mind, there's no chance that anything is going to go wrong tomorrow. But 
when it has gone wrong, I'm just like, oh, that was disappointing. But it's gonna... just another it's just another round in the metaphorical fight. You've been exactly. knocked down three times now trying to go for the sub two thirty marathon. And it's like, you know, maybe this is the round where you connect on the knockout blow. Exactly. And that was my hope and anticipation in working with you is that I've tried to do this on my own three times. And clearly I didn't have like the magical winning formula to get to where I wanted to be. So I said, let me bring in the best running guy in the country. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> I told you about a quick story. I was running in Philadelphia and a woman rode up next to me uh, with a baby on the back of a bike. And she asked me about my shoes. I was running in Newton's, just some little conversation. And I was running, I don't know, like just trotting along, maybe like 630 pace. But I was like doing a little bit of effort, but not crazy. And, uh, She's like, what are you training for? I said, oh, CIM. She's like, oh, I'm training for that too. I'm trying to get Olympic qualifying standard uh, at that race, the last chance to qualify. Her name was uh, Anne-Marie Everhart and um, super nice girl. And uh, she was living, she lives in Philly where I was for eight weeks. And um, I, I don't know how it came up, but somehow she was like, who's coaching you maybe? And, and your name came up. And she was like, oh my God, I love him. And it made me, and, <laughs> and I had this like realization of like, oh, I just know you as Mario, the podcast guy who's a runner and stuff. But that's when I was like, oh wow, he has a huge following, like random people knowing, knowing his name on uh, on the Scully Kill River in Philadelphia. Well, I thought it was very complimentary I mean, that's, that's too kind, but to your point, I'm just a guy who coaches runners and has a podcast and nerds out about running weekly. And well, how many, that's, that's how many how people you have running in the trials? Seven. All right. That's not a, just a random dude coaching people. That's an impressive uh, accomplishment. Well, thank you. Last bit before we wrap up here, I want to go back to the podcast. This is the fight with Teddy Atlas, which you co-host mm -hmm. with him. You don't have a background in media or interviewing people, but I remember watching the first couple of episodes because I believe John Summerford, who does some of the editing for my podcast, was helping out with some oh, of the early yeah, episodes right. of that show because you recorded in California at one of Teddy's training camps. And I was like, well, let me check this out because I was interested, not so much in boxing. I appreciate boxing. My dad was a fighter, um, but I don't follow the sport. But I wanted to see what things looked like from the video perspective because you guys film all of your podcasts yep. and put them on YouTube, and John was helping out with that. And I watched the first couple episodes of the show, and that was my first exposure to you. It was my first real exposure to Teddy Atlas, and I was hooked just on <laughs> – Teddy as a coach and I was learning a lot from him and how he approached the sport of boxing but I'm watching you as his co-host and really the guy who's leading the show and I was impressed immediately by your knowledge of boxing you clearly follow the sport know what you're talking about but just how comfortable you felt on the mic so has that been a natural or was that a natural transition for you to get into podcasting and obviously it's something that you enjoy because you told me so much earlier and you're continuing to put out episode after episode you're flying in new york from here to record the next one so yeah well that's nice of you to say i appreciate it but in that those episodes that you watched from um oxnard we interviewed vasily lomachenko it was like the second in-person in interview we'd ever done and it was only maybe like the fifth or sixth podcast we had done inside i was shitting myself i mean that's still like that interview with Lomachenko is the by far the worst the worst I've ever been. I, I was so uncomfortable and so awkward. He doesn't speak English, so he had an interpreter there. He speaks a little English. 
But it was like he was doing it as a favor. It just felt like he didn't want to be there. He was sitting back away from the microphone. It was like a crash course in interviewing and broadcasting. And um, I will say this, like that's <clears throat> similar to running. That's become like a huge passion of mine. And, and, and if I'm being honest, like my dream job would be to call fights with Teddy on a major network or even have a um, boxing show that's on a network like a, a sports reporters type show where I have different reporters come on and talk about their different fights going on it's just something I love it's like how you feel about running I mean I love running but you're so much more in tune with who the practitioners are I mean I know the big names and I'm really good friends with Des Linden who's literally one of my best friends in the sport I love her and um, so so I'm I'm in tune with what's going on but not to the extent you are and that's but 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 I feel about boxing the way you feel about running is like I want to know everything that everyone's up to I mean literally before you got here I was talking to Regis Prograis who um, unfortunately lost a huge unification fight for the um, for all the belts at one at 140 uh, recently to Josh Taylor but he's such a nice guy We've become really close friends in um, in LA, and uh, yeah, it's just it's it's just a genuine love, and it's like to things like that, like Joe Rogan, Jesse Isler, Tim Ferriss would preach about is like find something you really like doing and going and go for it, and like because if you if you're doing what you love, you'll never really work a day in your life. And and I've been lucky in that I've been afforded the opportunity to do this while I'm still providing for my family, working in finance. I, I work as like a placement agent, raising money for different fund managers and different startups. And I've been able to, luckily, I've been able to do this on the side because my job allows for flexibility and schedule. And I'm in New York for work all the time anyway. But if you can figure out a way to do exactly what you're doing, a podcast on running and just go for it and come Commit to it a hundred percent, just like training for a marathon or any goal that seems insurmountable. If it's too easy, it's not worth doing. Like if you know you can't fail, why would you even bother? So there has to be an element of risk there to get you motivated and get you out of bed and keep you honest. And that's kind of how I feel about the boxing podcast. Is like I love it. It's like my dream job. I mean, short of being a fighter myself and being a world champ, the best thing I could hope for at this point is to talk to world champs and get an idea of what they're going through and what their challenges are and just as you know from talking to world-class marathoners the same with fighters they're just like me and you they just have a skill that's different you're an awesome coach and broadcaster and podcaster they're awesome at boxing and you know Teddy talks about this all the time in um, with boxers. It's like the same fears and the same feelings that you have. These guys have too. Just like you're scared before a race, these guys are scared walking to the ring. Anyone who says they're they're not scared is full of shit. We're all equal. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but yeah, that boxing podcast is like my is is as important to me as the running. I love it. Well. It's a great tangent to end this conversation on. A lot of great takeaways. I think that was one of the strongest ones, but I loved it. That's what's important to me at the end of the day is that I had a conversation that I was personally impacted by, and I can say with honesty that I was. So thank you for this past hour and 16 minutes or so that we've been talking and guess uh, you'll get after it tomorrow here yeah. at CIM. This is going to come out well after the fact, but I'm excited to watch you along the course. Well, thanks for having me on. I, I apologize if I got long-winded or bored anyone, but um, I appreciate your time, and uh, I love the people that I've met in the running community, and uh, happy to do it. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. What'd you think? 
If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to Tracksmith for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of runners who are dedicated to building classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel that celebrates the amateur spirit and inspires the personal pursuit of excellence. Still looking for a gift for the runner in your life, or maybe you just want to treat yourself? Check out their gift guide, personally selected by staff members and friends. I shared my own selection, the Harrier Long Sleeve, and you can check out other ideas at tracksmith.com slash gifts. Follow them on Instagram at TracksmithRunning and do your shopping at Tracksmith.com. A big shout out as always to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show and he makes every episode sound as good as it does. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>